beautiful things to to bloom in your life and I hope you have some time and space to hibernate and dream this winter uh, where where I am now it's uh, cold and there's snow on the ground and um, you know uh, I'd like to be hibernating uh, but I'm also excited to be here and have the opportunity to read to you and share words and music and community and uh I hope your I hope 22 2022 brings all of those things to you and uh I'm gonna kick off the the new moon and the new year uh with stories from the beautiful collection the predatory animal ball by Jennifer Fliss and this is published by OK Donkey Press, and uh, it's uh, it's just it's a terrific collection that you're gonna want to get your paws on. So I'm I'm gonna read you some stories from it, and uh, uh, you're gonna hear some music uh, underneath it. This piece is called uh, Symphony from Mr. Bear by Sugar Whiskey, and that'll that'll be playing to accompany these luscious dark words of Jennifer Fliss. Uh, so let's um, let's plunge into the new year. Uh, I don't know where you are, but uh, around these parts they have a, a polar plunge on on the first of the year and um, some some people go running into Lake Michigan uh, in the cold in their bathing suits. Um, and uh, I watched that the other day. Uh, I I did not participate. Um, you know, even though it's you know, polar polar bear. I'm not a polar bear, so I I did not plunge in. But um, but I'm gonna plunge into the into the new year with you, and uh, I'm gonna start uh with this piece called the Great Bear. Working in Antarctica is for serious scientists. They say. For people who know what they're getting into. For people not like you, they don't say, but don't have to. They also do not say, you are already so lonely, we think the black cold of the tundra will kill you. They do not say these things because A, it is implied, and B, they do not think themselves cruel. They are Midwesterners, and their cruelty lay in what is not said. You're already partially made of ice, frozen so long ago that if they drilled, they'd find the fossils of woolly mammoths. Furry, warm, but someone would have to brave the tusks first, and who'd be stupid enough to try that? 
The first known depiction of the constellation Orion was found on mammoth ivory. You love that those two things go together in that far off way. When they do acknowledge your plans, they say you'll get eaten by polar bears. You aren't leaving until May. You have five months and you're not sure you can make it here. Staying in the town you grew up in, with your parents, in your childhood bedroom, under posters of bands you never liked. These are the last holidays you'll spend in this cold Midwestern town. It starts to snow before they arrive. First the aunt, and then the grandparents, and then the aunt and uncle and the many children. They doff their heavy coats and shuffle into the tight foyer. They drink old fashions and ask for extra cherries. The children go off to the plaid carpeted and wood paneled basement. Outside the window, you watch the snow circle itself, a waltz. Your degrees are just pretty pieces of paper with their curly cues, barely legible scrawls, your full name in a serif font. So odd looking all together like that, you often think that it can't be you. You are not all those names, all those connections to the past, to your family. You are not married. Your 14 years of experience in a lab are nothing because you have no children. Fellowships, papers, commendations, feh, they do not say, but they also do not respond when you send your news via the family group text. But oh, how they respond to your nieces and nephews' photographs in their Halloween costumes and first day of school photos with the cutesy sign saying they want to be a doctor or scientist when they grow up. How cute, everyone replies, all with many exclamation points and emojis. As you're staring out the window, someone asks if you're seeing anyone. They're entirely too close, and you can smell the whiskey on their tongue, a magic carpet of alcoholism. They've only just arrived and their glass is still full. Someone says their daughter is an asshole, then covers their mouth as if embarrassed, but they know what they said and are proud of it. You know everyone's names, but don't recognize anyone. The snow collects the way it does in the Midwest, at first on the hedges and then on the grass and then on the driveways and then on the street. They will all get snowed in, you think. They will all have to stay the night. You open the screen door and step into the burgeoning snowstorm. You're wearing house slippers, but you don't care. You always pack your slippers. They will come with you to Antarctica, too. You slide the door closed behind you into a silence only snowfall can elicit. Overhead, outside of the city, you can finally make out some constellations. It is a small joy. You look over at the shed where you had your first kiss, Mike McNeil. You wander over to the playset where you fell and broke your leg at eight. Halfway across the yard, you step wrong into a divot and your ankle turns out. Fuck, you chastise yourself, because it's been there forever, and how long has it been since you've been home that you could have forgotten? Your ankle radiates and feels tender, but it's okay. Out here, there are no fences to divide lots, just expanses of grass between homes. In the day, you'd see playsets and statues of saints and dormant water features. In the dark, you see none of that, but you can feel their ghosts. A rev of a truck out on the main drag. A second. Races, probably. It was big when you were a high schooler, though you never participated. Two kids died your senior year from such an event. 
but you can't remember their names. Warm light emanates from the windows. A person walks across the field of vision in one window. A Christmas tree blinks in another. In the house across the way, you see Ms. Horowitz sitting at her kitchen table. One of her hands holds up her head, as if it is so heavy it can't possibly stay up on its own. The other drums the table. She stares out the window and you wonder if she sees you. She was always so kind, volunteering in your elementary school library, offering you one book after another, recognizing a kindred spirit, perhaps. One of the first books she gave you was a National Geographic book on animals and polar habitats. Behind her is a small light from above the stove. Otherwise, her house is dark. You recall when Mike, the one you first kissed, left a note with a swastika on it in her mailbox. He told you about it and giggled like he had left her a valentine. He never talked to you past sophomore year, and you hate that your first kiss was with a Nazi and that you can't erase that. You keep walking. The snow whips around, beautiful, wild. Your feet are starting to get wet through your shearling slippers. Your thighs burn with cold. Your ears ring. A laugh pierces the air. One of those animal guffaws that comes from a man who probably drinks a lot, was football captain, has two daughters with long hair and bitches about socialism. You hate it here. You always did. So you keep walking past the backs of houses. These are the parts of houses that people don't want on display. Rusted lawnmowers, shipping boxes discarded in heaps, old cat beds, tangled pipes from who knows what. For someone supposedly made of ice, you are getting quite cold. The houses grow farther apart. You leave the festive lights behind and look up. There she is, Ursa Major, roaring up in the purple-black sky. She guides you. After what feels like hours, but it might have been ten minutes, wisps of clouds stream in. You always loved when you could see clouds at night. It feels like something no one else gets to witness. With them, however, you lose sight of the bear. The snow is accumulating. Large swaths of white lay all around you. You think about falling backwards and making a snow angel, but your toes feel like blocks of ice. A dagger of cold at your temples dares you to keep going. You don't want to lose your way, and you're a scientist and know that hypothermia is real, even outside of the tundra. Even in the wilds of suburban Wisconsin, you're at risk, especially, perhaps. You turn around and go back. You wish you had told them all that there were no polar bears in Antarctica. Just short of slipping back into the side door, you observe what's happening in the house. The bodies collected inside look like a multi-headed monster, a Medusa of sorts. You imagine yourself a modern-day Perseus, and instead, go knock on Ms. Horowitz's door. Just the air that they breathe. A tiny woman lived in the little terrarium that hung in Mr. and Mrs. Barker's kitchen window. After her third miscarriage, Mrs. Barker drove herself to Buck's nursery and told the salesman she couldn't keep things alive. Well, an air plant would be a good start, he told her. They didn't even need soil, just the air that they breathe. Maybe give them a spritz of water here and there and they will thrive, he said. 
Mrs. Barker bought a spiky Milano crater, a thumb-sized grassy filifolia, and a green Tillandsia eonantha with pink tips. To house them, she bought a round glass terrarium the size of a fist. To go with it, she purchased a small bag of perfectly tanned sand. From a dusty makeup bag, Mrs. Barker found tweezers and an eyeshadow brush and used the utensils to place the plants just so and arrange the sand. She hung the terrarium in the window over the kitchen sink so she could see her plants often. The woman that lived in the terrarium took up residency about a month in, when the plants not often talked about fragility was beginning to show. The tips were browning, and the reedy leaves began to weep. Mrs. Barker had not invited the mysterious squatter in and didn't even know she was there. The woman in the terrarium was unsure of how she got there herself, but she went about her work anyway. She spoke to the plants in soft whispers. Sato voce, she said, live. She lifted their arms when they drooped. She nourished the air around them, and they in turn took it all in. One day while cleaning their two dinner plates free of Salisbury steak, Mrs. Barker heard a faint voice, so faint she thought it must have been her imagination or something caught in the radiator. It was like a faint waterfall and brought to mind cradles and wispy hair and rocking and Mrs. Barker began to hum along. Eventually the hum turned into her voice and she sang as she finished the dinner dishes. She kept on as she spritzed her little plants. She didn't stop. Lullabies, Simon and Garfunkel, Van Halen, Christmas carols, it didn't matter. She sang while she showered. She sang while she cooked. Did she imagine one of the reeds of the Milano crater waving? She kept singing. A month after that, Mr. Barker remarked upon how well the plants were doing. They are beautiful, he said, and gave her a chlorophytum camosum, a common spider plant. Wiry offshoots from the main plant filled the container, and from one shoot came a smaller plant, and another, and still another. They all resembled the main spider. Mrs. Barker later learned they were referred to as the mother and her spiderettes. She invited the self-propagating creature in. The woman in the terrarium knew that her work in the terrarium was done. One morning, Mrs. Barker placed the spider plant next to the sink. As she filled the watering can, the woman in the terrarium jumped. She immersed herself in the warm, loamy soil of the spider plant. One year later, the woman in the spider plant was gone. Seven baby spiderettes had flourished. Mrs. Barker sang to her numerous plants, and the Barker's house was filled with a quiet breathing. Trees like a way out. All right, so I needed gas and rolled into the Sunoco practically on fumes, and next to me was Bob Ross. And I'm like, hey, hey man, Bob, Bob Ross? He nodded. Look at those trees, I said. Tell me about those trees. And Bob Ross was like, I'm just filling my gas, friend. He was filling up with premium. Must be something to live like Bob Ross. I ran into the food mart quickly, keeping my eye on Bob through the window. I slapped down a 10 on the counter. Pump three, please. Under the harsh lights and amidst the aroma of slowly churning hot dogs, I realized maybe I was dead, and this was a kind of way station to heaven, and Elvis and Jesus would pull in any moment. 
Gran always said she saw Jesus in things. Toast, tea, Target. I ran back out and selected the cheapest gas. Bob Ross was at the pump next to mine, and his car was a 1985 Plymouth Voyager. You know, the minivan? The one with the wood paneling along the side? It was just like my grand's living room. Minus the crystal bowls of Werther's and Precious Moments dolls. But the wood paneling. Sometimes it felt like those panels were prison bars. She eventually had the paneling taken down, and after that, I'd push my cheek up against the cold plaster of the wall and feel free and soothed, but like something was missing. Gran raised me after my parents left, together. I spent hours watching PBS while my grandmother knit in the corner. She made scarves that never ended. She didn't say much except to say the following things. Are you capable of anything? What do you want to be when you grow up? Why don't you apply yourself in school? But then, once she gave me some paints and a book of fancy paper just because. She'd run her fingers along the paint when it dried and pulled her lips into a line and said she liked my use of textures. One of my first paintings was of a great big tree with a nest of robins in a high branch. Robins don't nest that high up, Gran said, but she hung it on the fridge anyway, where it still hung nearly 20 years later, hidden beneath coupons, childhood school photos of my mom, and reminders of doctor's appointments long past. I said, hey, Bob Ross, your car reminds me of my Gran, and he was all offended, and I was like, no, no, in a good way. You know those Precious Moments dolls, I said, with their eyelashes and cow eyes, he asked? Yeah, I said, those. I didn't mean it like that, but I didn't think Bob Ross wanted to hear what I really meant. Bob Ross was quiet for a moment and then was like, yeah, they were cute. I loved watching your show when I was a kid, I said, towing my shoe along some old gum, suddenly shy. Thanks, he said, and began to clean his windshield. Small rivers of dirt water fell off the ends as he completed one line, then the next. Even finer strips of dirt were left on the windshield. It went dirt, clean window, dirt, clean window. So that when Bob was satisfied, he replaced the brush into the murky water bucket by the pumps. I looked at the not entirely straight lines in his windshield and thought, this was an artist. He didn't say anything else, and I felt compelled to fill the space of silence. The trees, you know, the little trees, you made it seem so easy. Yeah? He paced by his pump, his dollars ticking away behind him on the screen. Yeah, in the end, just those little marks made everything so beautiful. That's art. And I paused for a moment, heard the click of my own gas pump. Yeah, it is, he said. Back in my car, I realized I just saw Bob Ross. I picked up my saw to take a photo, but the Voyager was gone. But I did notice a shiny rainbow puddle where the van had been, and believed it was beautiful in its way, the way all toxic things are. I snapped a quick photo. Maybe I'd share it on social media. Gran just got a smartphone, so I zipped the image off to her and hoped she'd be able to see it. The Jews' things. The boat showed up sometime in the early morning hours. They think this because people who'd been promenading along the beach the evening before, and the teenagers who were frolicking under the midnight moonlight had not seen it. So it must have arrived in the dark, or the semi-dark, or the near lightness of day, which is the way of such things, they said. 
though it's also possible they had just turned their heads away so as not to see. It had been raining for weeks, and there was a brief reprieve, which nearly everyone mistook for a change of season. Leon had come to the beach to see what he could find. Agates, sea glass, solitude. He knew the weather would not last, and it would storm again. In the sky, an anvil of a cloud approached. Soon. No one was aboard the boat, which was more like an oversized skiff. Piles of suitcases filled the space, precarious, but the dangerous balance had worked. The way things did until they didn't. These were all old things, worn, touched and packed and beloved. Leon thought of the word valise, a degeneration of leather, faded tourist stickers, initials etched into the sides. It is the Jews' things, one reporter said, creasing his eyebrows, his lips pulled into a grimace. Off camera, he wiped spittle away from the corners of his mouth. How did they know it was the Jews' things? The items looked as though they'd been decades at sea. Salt broke the locks that had been placed so diligently on suitcases. Inside were things the Nazis didn't bother, which was surprising given how they had stocked their homes with the furniture of the Jews, placed upon their walls the art of the Jews, lit their candles upon the candlesticks of the Jews, and filled the spaces that once were filled with the Jews themselves. Do these items still say Jews if there were no Jews left to claim them? It was not just the Nazis who had built homes out of the Jews' ashes. Their bodily dust, the mortar, their belongings, the bricks. Leon knew this. It's why they lived in this small town now. But his mother didn't talk about it. No, this was something else. A cache that had in some way gone unobserved by the Nazis and the bystanders. This had been allowed to escape only by the blessing that a human cannot see everything. A forgotten thing, a hungry tide, a roiling ocean, that was its safety. On the beach, greedy hands pulled at the wrecked locks. Inside, sitters, shawls, mezuzot, dresses, photographs, kiddush cups. The hands and reporters didn't know the names for these things, but Leon did. Also inside were dolls made of fabric, Hair tied in silky knots, novels, candlesticks, children's books, diaries, bow ties, skirts, socks that had been darned several times, and socks that looked new. Somehow everything inside the suitcases had survived the sea. Leanne did not believe in miracles. A woman commented on the weird, unfamiliar letters. A man fondled the silky strands of a doll's hair. Leon had been beachcombing, and he had seen the small boat a few feet into the water. He kicked off his shoes, rolled up the cuff of his pants, and waded into the cold. There was a rope dangling, begging him to take it. It was heavy, all this baggage. He ran it aground after several attempts. It moaned as it keeled to the left, the boat forging a deep indentation into the beach. Its dreams had been lost bobbing on the white crests of the ocean at the bottom of the sea, probably further back at its departure point. The boat set itself upon the sand of this new land and decided, yes, this will do. And there the boat, filled with the Jews' things, stayed until Leon found it. He had made one phone call to his friend who happened to be a journalist. Almost immediately, scores of people filled in around him. 
Everyone's always looking for treasure. Leon took several steps back and bled into the background. The bright lights from the cameras. The puns uttered carelessly from the mouths of journalists. Leon regretted his call immediately, but there was nothing he could do. It was done. Leon thought how fitting it was. It was Friday evening. His mother was making dinner right then. Roast chicken, carrots with raisins. She did not make challah this week, but he had picked up some brioche at her request from the grocery store. Close enough. Sometimes it was the best you could do. This Friday meal was special. The rest of the week, frozen meals and takeout. His friends knew, but no one said anything. His mother had told him he should appreciate the gesture. They don't often, she had said, but not finished. A joke about Anne Frank. A drop of rain on Leon's nose, then two more. Sudden pockmarks darkening the sand. Leon looked up. The items were packed into boxes and then into a van. Where were the things being taken? The beach emptied. Leon watched as the red rear lights faded into the night as the van drove away. Sand caught in his eyelashes, the grit nearly lacerating his corneas. But he did not look away. Degrees. 63 degrees. It is spring. We are languishing on the hoods of our cars in the school parking lot that's otherwise empty because it's a Saturday. A Chrysler from the 80s, a Ford truck from the 70s, a Lexus from 1998, a newer model Corolla, and a shiny new Tesla. If it were October in this temperature, we'd already be wearing jackets. But it's early spring, and the weeds are pushing up, and we are all heady from the winter hibernation. 72 degrees. We discuss going to the swimming hole, which is really just a lake that has been strangled by condo developments until it became a meager reflection of its former self. We discuss it, but we don't actually go. There's still a bite in the air when we're wearing nothing. 77 degrees. We go to the swimming hole. We wear oversized vintage t-shirts advertising bands we've never listened to. The water is still chilly. The rocks beneath our bare feet are slimy and soft, and we clench our toes to keep us steady. We take water into our mouths and spit it upward like we are Cupid statues. The water tastes like jasmine and gasoline, and it coats our hair, and in our wannabe hippie way, we insist it cleanses our souls. 84 degrees. We are up early. We don't wear shoes while we run around the grass and balance on a slack line we've tied between two trees. We have picnics and sweat slips down our backs when we chase after girls we are crushing on. 87 degrees. We fall into bushes and beds and sandy beaches and make out. Our adolescent glistening sweat tells us we are doing it right. This is passion, we think. It's what we've been told to believe. We believe it. 99 degrees. We've grown lazier. We stay in bed with the sheets pushed to the floor. The power has gone out again, so the AC isn't working. We say we'll meet up, but we bail. We stay home, lethargic under the tent of a book and on chairs that rock slowly, or we doze on porches as insects bite at our skin. 102 degrees. 
Christ it's hot, we say over and over and over again. We fan ourselves with pieces of paper, take out menus, homework, Japanese paper fans we saved from a samurai-themed party we threw last summer. We take to our cars and drive fast with the windows down to feel the sandy air on our faces. 106 degrees. We grow irritable. The meteorologists can't explain the heat wave. It's hotter in D.C., they say. At least there's that. 110 degrees. On TV, the politicians' ties are loosened. As soon as they're out of the building, their jackets are off, too. It makes for a much more casual government. Climate change has finally hit the Republicans, people on social media chirp. 114 degrees. Sandstorms pick up debris of our lifetime. Take out bags from the burger place, receipts, crumpled grocery lists, post-its and classified ads, children's sandboxes empty, gardens lift on the air leaving naked seeds. The birds pick at these, hopefully. The phantom wind whips around the corners of our houses surprising us, even though we've been hearing it for weeks. The ghost runs his devilish fingers along the siding, letting us know he's just outside. 117 degrees. Our crimson skin erupts into tiny Mount Vesuviuses. 125 degrees. The plants frizzle and char like roasted vegetables left out too long, which indeed they are. Our air conditioning fails, our electricity fails, our water fails, our crops fail, our hospitals fail, our long-term plans fail, our hope fails, our relationships fail. 132 degrees. Our short-term plans fail, our minds fail, our hearts fail, our bodies fail. 147 degrees. The sand collects on the leather interior of our vehicles, scratching the CDs left out on passenger seats. They will never be able to play music again. Even if there were equipment to play it on and hands to do it, it would be garbled half versions of the stories they meant to tell. 150 degrees. First the tires are covered. The wind pushes the sand up more and more until the doors are stuck shut. The sand covers them entirely, leaving metal sarcophagi to become never-visited monuments to commemorate our inventiveness. 162 degrees, we are all dead. 194 degrees, our vehicles and buildings and the remnants of our hopes begin to melt into silvery solder. 200 degrees, the phantom surveys his kingdom. Finally, silence. The empty desert expanse undulates under its breath. The scorched earth was a map of three-dimensional hieroglyphics depicting the life that was. The phantom rolls up the sand, balls it up, feels the grittiness of it, and drops it down, down, down to the earth, burying bodies, ignored carrion, creating dunes where there were none. The Thick Green Ribbon the Ghost Tree Trail was meant to be an out and back, marked as difficult and lightly trafficked, nine miles with a 4,000-foot elevation gain. Lynn and Andy stabbed their hiking sticks into the muck and trudged through the switchbacks, sweat collecting under their base layers. To their right, 
vertiginous drops. To their left, old-growth forest. Dense tree canopy broke the sun into shards, and nurse logs hosted new generations of flora. Hundred-year-old firs and cedars, vine maples, all manners of ferns, huckleberries. Blankets of moss enveloped everything. In the air, loamy evergreen with wafts of decay. At semi-regular intervals came the baritone call of a great horned owl, beautiful but unsettling in the middle of the day. I gotta pee, Lynn said, and stepped off trail. Her feet sank in the underbrush. From her backpack, she procured a fold of tissue, pulled her pants down and crouched. She watched Andy approach a mushroom colony on a log. Think these are chanterelles? No. He started scraping. Think there are more? We're not foragers, Lynn said. He dropped them. After a while, the warmth of her urine flowed as she held her pants out of the way. She wiped, tossed the tissue aside, and returned to the path. Relieved, she smiled. Let's go. Leave no trace, Andy said. It's biodegradable. The wad of tissue hung between the branches like a tiny hammock. After the next switchback, they came across a broad section of cut trees, two-foot stumps surrounded by splinters. Beside them, scrawny evergreen saplings, new growth. A sign from a paper company told them they were committed to nature, committed to maintaining the landscape, and so they planted a tree for every one they hacked down. A sudden susurration of leaves on the nearby trees, like prayer, like a graveyard. I think it's called a harvest unit, Andy said. That's depressing. Two miles later, they reached the top. Loosening their jackets, they high-fived each other and looked out at the view. A clearing of thousands, millions of evergreens, tightly packed in sentinel. Verdant breathing hills in every direction. It feels so good to get outside, Andy shouted, holding up his sticks in triumph. On a bench anchored to a slab of concrete, Lynn sat atop a carved J.C. Loves F.R. Andy sat on a local record shop sticker. They ate sandwiches and nuts and took generous swigs of water. After a while, they tightened up their bootlaces and reshouldered their packs. Shall we, Andy said, reaching around to stuff his trash into a side pocket. In his wake, crumbs, napkin shreds, and eventually the sandwich bag came loose and flew off. After the first switchback, Lynn almost walked into a towering Sitka spruce in the middle of the trail. I don't remember this tree, she said. You really remember them all? Lynn tried to sidestep it, but tripped on a root. You okay, Andy said, coming up behind her. Yeah, I'm good. My turn, Andy said, going off to pee. Lynn picked at some tree bark. Pick, 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 eventually loosening some. She fingered the roughness, noticed red underneath, almost like blood. She picked some more, debris raining down onto her boots. Check this out, Lynn called. They'd seen it before, but the light was different now and the color almost unnatural. Lynn wondered aloud what all these trees would look like naked. Furniture, Andy said. They'd look like our furniture. They laughed and continued on the trail. Should be coming to the crossroads, Andy said. They walked and walked. Should be right here, Andy looked back. Lynn pulled out a map and opened the unwieldy thing. 
She turned to orient herself, flipped the map, traced her finger along a line. We passed it. We didn't, Andy said. And when they turned back around, they were faced with a wall of trees. Trunks wider than oil truck tankers, tall as multi-storied buildings. A western red cedar with its swooped branches was front and center, drooping western hemlocks beside it like guards. The trail heading back down was gone. These were not here, Lynn said. What the hell is going on? No idea. Are we at altitude? That can affect your senses. Barely. Lynn approached the trees. They all had a ribbon of moss around their width, about two feet up. She ran her finger along the velvety line. Okay, she said, let's turn around. That's not the way back. Well, Lynn motioned to the tree wall. We can't go this way. They retraced their steps, looking for the crossroads they thought they'd missed. In no time, the tree canopy grew denser, the forest darker, a rustling in the foliage. Lynn moved closer to Andy and pulled out her headlamp. It's not that dark, he said. Minutes later, he pulled out his own. They didn't find the crossroads and had no choice but to walk deeper and higher into the forest, knowing it was not the way out. The flora pulled in tight, narrowing the trail until they were forced to stop. The trail ran out, nowhere left to go. In a small clearing, surrounded by a near-perfect circle of trees, they dropped their packs. Lynn blew her emergency whistle. Andy kept consulting the map as if some new trail would appear and save them. They ate their emergency food rations, drank their water, and eventually slid their tired bodies down in exhaustion. They soon stopped talking and only listened to the wind in the branches, the bouncy song of a chestnut-backed chickadee, the not-too-far-away roar of a cougar. A mama black bear and two cubs approached, sniffing. Raptors circled above the canopy. The carpet of dead orange fir needles swept over the dead hikers, a time-lapse that took very little time. Dirt mounded over their fingers, then their hands, then their arms. The scrabbly hands of dried maple leaves scurried atop their torsos. Detritus filled their mouths, nostrils, eyes, and ears until they were absorbed into the forest floor, leaving no trace of them at all. The Predatory Animal Ball The Predatory Animal Ball was an exclusive affair, and a lowly field mouse would never have intentionally received an invitation. On heavy cardstock, like an old-fashioned scientific illustration, intricate sketches of animals snarled back at her. The scientific names of these members of the animal kingdom in cursive. The Latin made it all the more intimidating. The predators were not drawn to scale. The mouse prepared some tea. She poured the warm liquid into a ceramic cup, which had come as a set. She now used just the one the other dusty in the cabinet. It was the owl that had left her partner flayed, half-eaten, barely recognizable, but for his tail that forked at the tip. She found his body on a haystack in the barn. She hadn't been back inside since. They had bonded over their tails. Hers had been severed in an accident when she was young. The next season, 
grieving season, she went out only for food. Her agony was a tumor that grew exponentially. She writhed in pain, though not physical, it hurt just as much. After several months, she befriended her own reflection, talked to the window mouse, and finally reached out to touch her, only to feel the cold of glass in winter. She stopped talking to the window mouse, stopped reaching out, and curled deeper into despair. The invitation to the ball was the first of any kind that she had received since her beloved's death, and it was as if she'd been waiting to be invited back to life. The evening of the ball, the mouse ran her shaky paws up and down her tail, which had gone dingy with neglect. Looking at her reflection in the window, she marveled at how the window mouse looked so confident. The window mouse looked away. Outside the ball, she watched from the base of a willow tree, its weeping branches the perfect cover. A sad mouse under a sad tree. The predators pranced, stomped, and slithered up the grand staircase, and she marveled at the pageantry. But there were creatures obviously missing. The small, the vermin, the delicate. The door was about to close after the last animal, a massive and maned lion. The mouse nibbled at her nails. What happened when you went to a party not meant for you? She scrambled in. But she had not thought this far ahead and found herself under the sudden scrutiny of hundreds of eyes. Wolf, tiger, snake, hawk, grizzly, alligator. The owl was the only creature seemingly unconcerned with her presence. Look at me, see me, the mouse thought. A low growl issued from somewhere on her right, a hiss of a snake's rattle, the wet licking of chops. This was a mistake, and her partner would never have allowed this foolishness, this interloping with death. The mouse took one step back and the predators took two forward. She scurried along the edge of the wall, feeling the hot breath of those that followed. Ahead, one wall met another, a corner, no outlet, and yet she still ran. Then, with a whoosh, the mouse felt a clutch of talons at her midsection, a tightening, and then up, up, up. It was the owl. This is it, she thought. Kill me and be done with it. Her eyes were cinched tight, but her ears were wide open as they took in the howls and growls and the murmuring of a party interrupted. Then she felt the smack of cool night air as they left the building. She went limp as they began the descent, her body a loose configuration of what it should be. Peeking, she saw a field quickly approaching. The grass lit by the moon. It looked like salvation. A foot above the ground, the owl released. She hit the ground and tumbled feet over tail. When she stopped moving, she stared up at the hovering owl feeling like he was waiting for her to say something. Why? she asked in a quavering voice. The owl mumbled something about not being hungry, stretched its talons, and flew off into the night. That was Symphony for Mr. Bear by Sugar Whiskey and selections from The Predatory Animal Ball, stories by Jennifer Fliss. 
and you can get your own copy of the Predatory Animal Ball from OK Donkey Press. They're at okdonkeymag.com. And you can find out more about the wonderful Jennifer Fliss and all her beautiful writing on her website, jenniferflisscreative.com. Happy New Year. It's me, Mr. Bear. Oh, Happy New Year, Mr. Bear. So good to see you. Uh, come on in. Oh, what you doing? Oh, I was just uh, sitting here uh, doing some journaling and reflection. Uh, you know, new moon, new year. Um, I don't think of it as resolutions, but uh, I, I like to think about uh, setting intentions and uh, and some goals and you know, uh, I, I like to do this actually every month, every uh, every new moon is a is a great time uh, to think about what you want to to grow for the month. Yeah, I l- I like that. Uh, a lot of folks put a a lot of pressure on themselves at the beginning of the year to set resolutions and accomplish things, and uh, I I like I like that idea of. Uh, you know, just uh, every every month we we have a chance to do this. I mean, really, every day or any any time we want. Exactly. Uh, you know, it's not just you know one day or one time. So, have you been doing any uh, journaling or vision boarding, Mister Bear? Uh well, not yet. It's it's on my to do list. Uh, you know, maybe to uh procrastinate less or organize my time a little better. Uh, but also, you know, to uh, hibernate more and, um, you know, just uh, spend uh, spend more time in my cave uh, reading and listening to music and uh, making art, uh, going for walks and, uh, you know, and, and coming to see you. What about you? Well, as you know, I'm a two-dimensional hand-drawn rodent studying herbalism, uh, so I'm I'm just going to keep on studying herbalism and trying to help folks and, and, you know, try to dismantle the racist, capitalist, white supremacist, patriarchy, fight the power, all that, you know, the usual. And, you know, what better way to do that than with tea and growing our own plants and food and uh, empowering each other to take care of our own health and our communities. Uh, exactly. That, that's why I love coming to see you, Miss Mousy. But anyway, speaking of tea, uh, I was inspired uh, by these stories in uh, Jennifer Fliss's collection, um, especially that little mouse in the predatory animal ball. Oh uh, yeah, I know that. Just I really, f- I really felt for that little mouse too. Yeah, and you know, and she and she's drinking tea, and she just has that one little ceramic cup now she's using. But anyway, so I am. Um, I decided to come up with a tea formula inspired, um, inspired by her. So um, I I call it tea for when you're crashing a predatory animal ball, and um, it's going to be one part lady's mantle, which is a cloak to surround and hold you, 
a smidge of rose for protection and softness. Uh, thorny plants are always a great choice for that. Uh, one part yarrow for emotional armor. One part wood betony for grounding. And one part motherwort for, oh, everything. Motherwort is just so wonderful. Um, she's very bitter, uh, helps you hold your boundaries, is there when you need her, calms the heart, especially palpitations. Uh, and oh, when, when she's in bloom, oh, she has these beautiful spikes with these little pinky purple flowers, and, and they're just beautiful, but also really um, spiky. Those spikes are spiky, you know, they're, uh, you can kind of prick your little paws on them. And, um, and I just love that because it's just beautiful, but strong and tough and bitter and, uh, oh, motherwort. Um, and I also love before, you know, even before the flowers get there, when she just starts showing up in the, you know, spring, um, and, uh, the leaves are low to the ground and they're just, well, they look just so much like motherwort and they have this wonderful smell and I just love to rub the leaves between my little paws and and just breathe it in um anyway uh yeah so that's ladies mantle rose yarrow wood betony and motherwort and um I just uh uh pour boiling water over cover and steep it for about 15-20 minutes and then strain it out and it's just a lovely cup of tea, especially if you're going to a predatory animal ball. And if you want to get really fancy, you can mix it with cocoa. So you can um, heat up uh, milk of your choice, uh, you know, uh, uh, cow, goat, oat, coconut, almond, breast, uh, just kidding. Um, but, you know, whatever milk or milk product you like, and uh, uh, whisk in. Um, uh, I usually do a tablespoon and a half or two per cup because I like it really uh, chocolatey of the cacao powder. I just whisk that in, maybe add a dash of cinnamon, and um, you can then just mix that half and half, the, the cocoa and the tea, uh, which is delicious. And um, if you're feeling extra, extra indulgent, uh, a little drizzle of honey for some sweetness. Oh, Miss Mousy, that sounds amazing. Uh, do you happen to have any of this tea or cocoa handy? Well, as a matter of fact, Mr. Bear, I do. Um, I'll be happy to pour you a cup right now. Oh, and I also recommend pouring it in a very special mug. Uh, for instance, uh, like a, a ceramic unicorn mug uh, that has a unicorn head and... Uh, a unicorn tail for the handle with a rainbow mane and tail. Um, but, you know, if you don't have that particular mug, just use, you know, whatever is your favorite mug. Aw, uh, that, that sounds wonderful, Miss Mousy. Uh, I'm so happy to be kicking off the, the year and the apothecarium with you and some tea. Me too, Mr. Bear. It's always good to have a cup of tea with a friend. And, uh, you know, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Miss Mousy. On Happy New Year, dear listeners. Are you or anyone you know a musician? Amateur, professional, experimental? Do you tell stories with music and song? Are you interested in being considered for a potential feature on Mr. Bear's Violet Hour? 
If you have answered yes to any of these questions, please send samples of your work, links to Bandcamp, SoundCloud, your website, digital demo tape files on Google Docs, whatever you have, to violethourmoon at gmail.com. And that's the show, folks. Thanks for spending a little time with me in the Violet Hour. I hope you enjoyed the work of Jennifer Fliss. And I hope you will come back and join me on the full moon later this month. And I'm going to, before I go, I'm going to leave you with an oracle for the new year. Uh, so this is from Francine Pascal's Sweet Valley High, number 74, The Perfect Girl. Robin will do anything to keep George. So let's just flip randomly through, put my paw down on a passage, and see what our oracle is for the new year. Okay. Uh, six. My paw landed on the word six for chapter six. Elizabeth grabbed her books and her shoulder bag and ran out the door just as Jessica started beeping the horn. Hurry up, Jessica called out. We'll be late for school. Okay, so uh, that's that's our oracle for the new year. Let's uh, let's ponder that, shall we? Okay. Uh, thanks again. Take care and be kind to each other. Theme song and show music by Sugar Whiskey. Mr. Bear and Miss Mousie believe in radical love and kindness, in mutual aid, and empowering ourselves and our communities. Together we can dismantle the white, racist, colonizing, misogynistic, capitalist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist patriarchy. This podcast was recorded on Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria land. Text your zip code or city comma state to 907-312-5085 and find out whose land you're living on. Uh, You can also go to land.codeforanchorage.org for more information. There's also a helpful map at native-land.ca. This is just the first step in developing a land acknowledgement. Let's learn our history and honor the land and indigenous peoples, past, present, and future. This podcast was produced in collaboration with the Boston Free Radio Podcast Network, part of bostonfreeradio.com and Somerville Media Center, Somerville's longest-running public access media center that enables a vibrant and diverse community to express its creativity, explain its ideas, share its cultures, and foster the individual right to freedom of speech. Learn more about Somerville Media Center at somervillemedia.org or check out some of the other amazing Boston Free Radio podcasts and radio shows at bostonfreeradio.com. Thanks for listening.